Welcome to the DTB podcast for July 2014, volume 52, number 7. My name's David Fazakli and I'm DTB's deputy editor. Hello, and I'm James Cave. I'm editor-in-chief. Our first main article this month, Nicotine and Health, focuses on the impact of nicotine rather than the consequences of smoking. And we try and draw out some of the pharmacological aspects of nicotine itself rather than the consequences of all the other aspects related to smoking. James, what are the key issues for you in this article? Well, I think I think this is a really interesting article. We were very keen, particularly with all the uh, press and development of e-cigarettes, to look and see if we could tease out nicotine as a pharmaceutical agent from tobacco and smoking. And the first thing we discovered, actually, that is incredibly hard to do. You would have thought with so much experience of tobacco over the last century or two that we might have a lot of evidence about nicotine as a drug and oddly enough actually there's incredibly little. Most of it relates to nicotine in the format that it's inhaled, absorbed, eaten, whatever rather than pure nicotine itself. Exactly right so it's all about if you like the pharmacokinetics of smoking not the pharmacokinetics of nicotine as a base drug but we did find some really interesting stuff to talk about. And also, interestingly, there's been a broadening of the nicotine delivery products that you can buy or have prescribed. And that in itself is fascinating because they each have issues around how they deliver nicotine, um, which people may not be aware of. In particular, issues around things like um, water pipe use, uh, which is very popular in some parts of the country now and which delivers huge amounts of uh, uh, smoke. I mean, I was totally unaware, for example, that you might smoke the equivalent of 100 cigarettes in one sitting using a water pipe, which was a fascinating piece of information for me. And the other aspect of it, although we have a lot of uh, trial data on nicotine-containing products, most of it is about their efficacy in stopping you smoking, not about the pure effects of nicotine itself. That's right, and it seems a real shame, although we you know, have got quite good safety uh, data on long-term nicotine replacement therapy, it seems a shame that we haven't got more information about other aspects of their use. But I think what we've been able to tease out is that, uh, and I suppose part of me was wondering when we uh, decided to go ahead with this article, would we find that actually there's some evidence that nicotine has benefits, that actually, you know, in the same way that we all rather enjoy our caffeine, um, whether perhaps there would be a place for nicotine in our lives. Um, And uh, I'm not going to spoil the ending by telling you whether there will be a a place for nicotine in our lives or not. So whether it fulfills a glass of red wine story, you'll have to wait and see. Have Have to read the article. Okay. Our second main article this month looks at teriflunamide, a new drug for multiple sclerosis. Although there's been several new drugs launched over the last few years for multiple sclerosis, most of them have been either infusions or injections. But now we're beginning to see a few orally available preparations, and teriflunamide is one of those. Interestingly, it's a metabolite of the already launched disease-modifying anti-rheumatic drug leflunamide, and therefore it has immunomodulatory and anti-inflammatory actions. So what do we make of this one, James? Um, which is, this is an interesting drug. First of all, it, it's uh, a metabolite of uh, leflunamide, which is a disease-modifying drug for uh, rheumatoid and other inflammatory arthritis. So it's not a terribly new compound in, in that sense. What this drug is all about, it's about preventing 
relapses in the relapsing remitting form of multiple sclerosis. And uh, this is the type of multiple sclerosis that affects about 80% of people with MS. So it's got a, you know, there's a, there's a big role for trying to prevent uh, relapses in this group of people. And so, so at the moment, the drugs that are most commonly used for people with relapsing remitting MS would be interferon beta or glatiramir. Yes. They've been around for some time. They are available through the NHS um, in all the home countries. Can we see any significant differences between them and teriflunamide? The simple answer is not a great deal of difference. Obviously, one of the advantages of older drugs is you have a uh, better idea of their safety over a long period of time, which we don't have with new drugs. Um, Teriflunamide seems to have a similar ability to reduce the incidence of relapses. Uh, and, And that is a significant reduction compared to placebo. But the difficulty is that, of course, the clinical relevance of that depends on how many relapses people are having. And if you look at the clinical effectiveness, we're still talking perhaps about um, only preventing one relapse perhaps every six years for the average patient with uh, MS in this condition. So the relative reduction in relapses was quite impressive. 30%. But the because of the nature of the population studied, the absolute numbers it will take a long time for one person to see a benefit. Precisely. And this this drug um, costs about £13,000 a year. So we're talking about perhaps, say, four or five years before it has an effect. We're talking about perhaps uh, as much as sixty to £70,000 to prevent one relapse on average. Now, there's two issues I would, would hasten to say there. First of all, of course, if you are the patient who has a relapse and that causes a permanent deterioration in your neurological functioning, then obviously that amount of money may be very well worth it. And secondly, there is a one of these deals where the government discounts the drug to uh, the NHS. So I don't suspect that the NHS will be paying the full £13,000 a year. So as we, <laughs> we've talked about many times before, new drug, limited evidence, some encouraging evidence against placebo, but that's what you'd hope to see anyway. So that's where you've seen the benefit in terms of reduction in relapses in this population. Comparison with already licensed treatment, very limited evidence. Very limited. I don't think there's been any actual proper randomised uh, comparison at all between the two. The only one seemed to be this one study where they looked at time to withdrawal from treatment and showed no difference between them. And is this one for GPs to prescribe? <laughs> no, this is this won't be one for GPs to be prescribing. Um, the licensing rules are quite clear. This is for specialists to um, start. It does have a few side effects as well, which GPs ought to be aware of, um, diarrhoea being a particular issue. But no, this is something for your neurological specialist. And the only issue that might have to be ironed out is it's got quite an intensive monitoring requirement for things like liver function. Who's going to do that? Absolutely. In fact, I think it's every two weeks they suspect you do liver function in the first six months. So that is actually quite intensive. So somebody's going to have to organise blood tests for that period. Indeed, yes. Okay, thank you very much. A couple of items just to pick up from DTP Select this month. First one is another one of the EMA reviews of the safety of a medicine. This one is a launch of a review of Evabridine. 
under the trade name of Procorolan. Moment has got a license for management of long-term stable angina or long-term heart failure is available in, in, in the UK. But some safety concerns emerging? Yes, this was based um, on a study published uh, in the American Heart Journal, uh, the Signify study, which has just raised the worry that there may be an increase in the combined risk of cardiovascular disease or non-fatal heart attacks in patients that were taking it. Now, given that this drug is indicated in the use of angina in patients, this obviously may be a significant issue uh, for its use. Standard procedure in this is that the EMA announced that they're doing doing a review. They will now go away, investigate, look at the data. One of the things that did strike me was that the dose in the Signify study is higher than the current UK, or the range of doses used in the study is higher than the UK maximum trial dose, which may have a, a bearing on the outcome. But from a GP point of view, just being aware that this this investigation is oh, going on. Oh, that's absolutely right. This is this is not a recall. This is not anyone saying that there definitely is a problem with this drug. This is just part of the standard process that the European Medicines Agency goes through when there's a concern like this. So it's just raising the issue that there's a perhaps a flag, but nothing more at this point. And obviously, we'll follow up and report back when the full review is published. Yep, we'll keep you posted. And the second item, exercise and benefits in patients with osteoarthritis of the hip. Yes, this is quite um, pertinent and timely. We've had the new NICE guidance, which was an update from 2007, I think. They've just recently updated their guidance just in March. And osteoarthritis is going through a sort of relaunch itself as a disease and it's no longer considered to be a wear and tear disease people are talking about it's uh, a wear and repair and proponents of this new model are very keen to put across the idea that to allow your joints to repair you must exercise them and they go on and on about how if you've got osteoarthritis of the knee or the hip, you should still be exercising. And this was a review which has gone some way to support that approach by demonstrating that uh, patients who exercised who had osteoarthritis of the hip did have a slight reduction in their pain scores. In terms of the benefits people saw, what were the numbers needed to treat? Well, if you look at the numbers who had a benefit by that they meant a reduction in your pain score of eight or more out of a naught to a hundred scoring system. So if you said we'll say that it's been a success if someone reports a reduction of eight or more points, then you're looking at a number needed to treat of about six patients. And do we know what their baseline pain scores were? Around 29, I think their baseline was something around that type of level, I thought. So at the lower end of the, of the scheme, but still a, a benefit. Yeah, oh, definitely. And I think more importantly, because this is the, every patient's biggest fear, there was definitely no decline in pain levels. That was the big issue, because I think people with osteoarthritis have always thought, if I exercise, I'm going to wear my joint out even more, and that must be bad. And I think we're increasingly seeing that actually the studies where people exercise, you don't have that issue. And I think we can start getting much more confident at telling our patients this. Thank you. In this month's editorial, we look at the licensing of drugs and the indications for those drugs. And what we've seen recently, and, and in a very helpful way, is that drugs often gain new indications for new conditions and this obviously extends the range of treatments which are offered to patients. But one thing we just flag up is the potential that sometimes we question whether these indications are valid or even relevant to patients and whether we're not just creating 
extra uses of medicines which are not really justified. James, any comments? Yes, I think I think you've hit the nail on the head there. Our issue is not that it's wrong that a drug should have its license indications extended. Sometimes that can be a huge benefit to patients in general. And we know, all know of drugs. I mean, amitriptyline is the one that every GP knows about that was designed for depression and is now used for a whole range of other conditions, neuralgias in particular. So, so the idea of extending uh, drug license indications is not an issue. Where we are taking the system to task in our editorial is we just worry, particularly with the new DSM classifications, that there may be that there's a sort of a sense that the system is beginning to find a condition that they can then license their drug to treat. And some of these conditions perhaps are nothing more than slight deviations from the normal, perhaps. So reflecting on the illustration you gave of amitriptyline, we know that it's licensed for depression, but is not licensed for chronic pain Mm. and never will be. Unlikely that anyone will do the research or bother to put the license application in. But what we're seeing for some patented drugs is that it is in the interest of the company to prolong its license to maintain its patent by finding new uses for that drug. And the question you raise is whether that is always justified. That's absolutely right. And I think the example we give is the use of testosterone, perhaps, for the treatment of reduced female sex drive. It's a controversial issue. But there have been many others around things like social phobia and other conditions where one might suggest that actually is a drug the right and proper therapeutic approach for someone with a condition like that when it may well be that there are more effective treatments in the form of uh, CBT or psychological approaches which actually would provide those patients with skills for life that they can use forever rather than relying on a on a drug or therapeutic agent. So though the licensing process is very robust in terms of seeking evidence and proving that there is a benefit, what seems to be less robust is how you label or create a diagnosis and Absol- how you get that Absolutely, approved. and of course the difficulty is, you know, who is in charge of making diagnoses or creating diagnoses? And that opens another huge can of worms about who gets involved in the defining of diseases and their um, addition to things like DSM. So again, so slight concern that it might be driven by people with vested interests. That's the concern. And and even if it's not driven by those with vested interests, I mean, we can, if you like, open this debate up further to look at things like the dementia debate currently. And obviously there's a real drive to develop drugs for its treatment. But to do that, you have to be able to define dementia very effectively so you can then decide which patient should go into those trials to test those drugs. So there's even at a very early stage of development, perhaps a tension between the development of diagnoses and the development of drugs. And of course, the the risk being that actually you end up defining a condition by a drug that's used to treat it. Yes, or, or even you develop a whole scoring system that so you can demonstrate that your drug works and that scoring system then becomes the diagnostic tool to define the disease. And that's very much putting the cart before the horse. Thank you. To read these and any other articles from DTB, please visit our website, dtb.bmj.com.